Welcome to part two of this special episode of Straight from the CPA's Mouth, featuring Robert Andrews, CPA, CMA. If you haven't done so already, I encourage you to listen to part one of this podcast before joining us for part two. My name is Sharon Ryder from CPA Alberta, and I'll be your host as we continue exploring the topics of equity, representation, and racism in the CPA profession and in Canada. As a Black woman, these topics are important to me on a personal and a professional level, and I'm honored to be hosting this discussion during National Indigenous History Month. Before I go on, I would like to acknowledge that CPA Alberta resides and serves on traditional and ancestral territories of many Indigenous First Nations and Inuit people. I'm hosting from Mokinstis or Calgary, which is situated on Treaty 7 territory. As an organization, we are committed to building a profession where Indigenous people and their voices and experiences are heard, valued, respected, and celebrated. Joining me again via Zoom is Robert Andrews, CPA CMA. Robert is the Executive Director for the Aboriginal Financial Officers Association of Alberta and is an Assistant Professor in the Faculty of Business at Athabasca University. Robert has dedicated much of his career to supporting Indigenous people who wish to embark on careers in business and accounting or enhance their management practices to improve their communities. Welcome back to Straight from the CPA's Mouth, Robert. Let's dive in. 150,000 new businesses are created in Canada each year, but only emotional intelligence is a critical skill for leaders. How do I develop artificial intelligence will take over analytics, big data, trend analysis. that Alberta needs to diversify its economy, but how do we do that? Create new opportunities for young innovators. account for 77% of all private jobs. Filter out the noise. Hear it straight from the CPA's mouth. I'd love to dig a little deeper into that idea of meritocracy. And I want to connect it a little bit to your work as an educator and mentor to Indigenous students. But before I dive into that, would you like to just talk a little bit about that work that you do? Because I think there is a theme about, you know, your experience when you first started in, in the halls, as you talk about, is in post-secondary and things like that. And so I'd love to talk about, you know, maybe a little bit about your students' experiences, what you've seen. Um, but yeah, maybe we can start by you just talking a little bit about your work as an educator and mentor to Indigenous students. Yeah, the best job I've had, and I've had a, not too many jobs, but I've had a number of jobs. The role that I have, well, the organization focuses on on teaching managerial capacity to, to Indigenous people. And, and that broader than just simply First Nation people, Indigenous people in Canada. So our, our focus within management, of course, is very broad from, from accounting to uh, human resource management, from finance to operations, the, the whole gamut of, of managerial training. And the reason for this is First Nations operate as governments. They are governments. And as governments, they have their own public administration and they have their own, if you will, entities like crown corporations, tribal-owned businesses. So these managerial skills are necessary in their public administration and also their, their management of tribal-owned businesses. So what we do in our organization is develop programs and partnerships to help improve these um, necessary skills. So my role has multiple elements to it. I'm, I'm the uh, executive director, which means I have oversight of 
and development of all, all the programs and initiatives. But I also am the edu- one of the educators. And so I actually work day to day with the Indigenous students teaching. And when I say students, they're usually mid-careers or often very senior career uh, individuals in First Nation public administration. So my role on a day-to-day basis includes teaching these wonderful learners how to do accounting, how to manage conflict, how to develop financial statements, how to, you know, the whole gamut of of managerial function, what, what leadership is, kinds of leadership, qualities of leaders. That's my engagement. So typically we work with, you know, 20 individuals at a time over extended periods of time to teach these skills, but we also partner with organizations. So currently we have a a partnership with Athabasca University to offer a a program for Indigenous learners that's unique in that it was created by Indigenous scholars and taught by Indigenous people, uh, which, and, and I'll lead to why that's so important. And then we also work with very large prestigious institutions, in one case, Harvard, to develop training for Indigenous people in Canada and the U.S. And I had the privilege of help developing the curriculum for um, for Harvard Business School for, for this group. So why is it important to have our organization and Indigenous educators and scholars? Well, very simply, our worldview as an Indigenous person differs from others and is based on certain beliefs, assumptions, contexts that are unique to the Canadian Indigenous people. Now, sometimes when I say something like that, I'll get pushback saying we're all unique. And fair enough, I wouldn't argue with that. But the First Nation people in Canada have had a defined unique experience where they had settlement of their lands and they had treaties drafted with the government and and their nations. And they were placed as a people in pockets, reserves, where they were governed by Indian agents for all of their core governance, cultural, regulatory context. So, So when I say Indigenous people are unique, they really do have a unique experience. There, There isn't in Canada a similar group that has this commonality of experience that makes them very homogeneous in terms of their experience. So the Indigenous scholar, the Indigenous instructor is able to relate to them with that understanding and relate to them in a very, very rich way. So that's my principal role with the organization is as sort of a designer of these programs that reflect Indigenous worldview and context, provides relevance to the managerial education but also someone that shares that experience and that history. It's an extraordinarily rich experience. I can't describe the richness of that experience and the, <laughs> the, the wealth of that culture and, and what, a, what a pleasant, wonderful experience it's been. It sounds wonderful. So as you've been mentoring students during this time, you and as well as everyone that you work with and You talked about how you've seen, as a profession, you know, CPA has done a lot to change. In terms of equity, diversity, inclusion, and the experiences of your students and people entering the business profession, what changes sort of have you seen? Do you think that things are getting better? Do you feel like the students you work for 
um, have greater opportunity to show up as the their full self, uh, their full indigenous selves in the business world or in the profession. How are you feeling? How do you see that the changes have been? So changing policy is easy. Changing beliefs and values is very, very hard. And as I mentioned, the CPA as a profession, just like every other profession, is embedded in society and embedded in its policies, procedures, governance structures are these broader societal values. Now, we are starting to see, and, and, and very recently, like this discussion now is very different than it would have been two years ago, 18 months ago. So because mm-hmm. of many of the things that happened in the States, we drew parallels with our experiences in Canada. And so I would say institutions absolutely are more sensitized to these issues associated with marginalized populations and Black and Indigenous Lives Matter, those kinds of things. And through these, let's call them social awareness, many people in society as well are starting to take notice of Mm -hmm. issues that they weren't aware of privy to. And I think society is starting to change I actually think the institutions are a little bit further ahead of society, probably because they're they're smaller groups, usually they're governance structures that have to believe that change is necessary and that change along these lines is healthy and good. So I, I would suggest that we've seen a significant number of advances in the last two years and probably, you know, even within the last year. So I, I certainly think and and strongly believe things are improving. In terms of society, in terms of that overlay or underpinning of society in terms of the organizations, I still think we have many challenges there. And this goes back to the role of the institutions to help people move forward, move along, to understand more deeply. I, I don't want to suggest change people's ways of thinking, but I do want to suggest that we inform them better so they can change their ways of understanding. And and, in my heart of hearts, I I believe that so many of these beliefs, tendencies, stereotypes are simply based on ignorance in the sense of not knowing, not understanding the history. And this is true of all marginalized groups. So I think that, again, the institution is improving. I think the universities as, as conduits to CPAs Um, Because, of course, you have to go through universities, multiple programs within universities to become a CPA. I think they're also improving. I think there's tremendous opportunity to take that further, particularly at the post-secondary level, where they can formalize learning about not only the Indigenous population, but, but other populations that have similar kinds of experiences. So it's certainly better. I do think we have very, very, very far to go. But yeah, I I definitely, absolutely think it's improving. The interesting part, again, is there's inherent tensions in these changes. And what we tend to do when we're stressed, either as a society or as an institution, as a person, to kind of go back to those earlier hell points of view. So 
with COVID, we see the strains on society. So we spring back to earlier beliefs. And as much as COVID has taught us we're interconnected, COVID also created more racial disharmony. So I think we always have to be mindful that as tensions increase, we do have a tendency to go back. So I, I think we have to look at structures that, that disallow this to happen. So hopefully that also started to address some of your questions. Again, yeah. So as you look ahead at, you know, the continued work that needs to be done and still wrestling with some of the very real challenges and realities, what gives you hope about this work, about this situation as we move towards hopefully a more equitable profession and society? Um, what, what gives you hope? Well, Sharon, I could not help hearing that uh, question with a sigh and, and <laughs> as a person that I know has experiences not dissimilar, what do you think? I heard from that kind of almost like a recognition of the challenge we have to face and, and the hurdles we still have ahead of us and how much we pay lip service to some of these things, but no in our hearts, a lot of things haven't changed. So tell me what you think. Yeah, I think that often it's hard to think about it in the sense of hope, to be honest. I'd be lying if I didn't feel pretty hopeless about a lot of this a lot of the time, even similar to you as I work within my community, as I, you know, organize and advocate and things like that. I do think that even at times, like even last year, there was a period where I was like, wow, like this is, I mean, come on, right? But I think that even if there is an absence of hope, um, sometimes I still have to hold on to the idea that there is something to work towards, that there are people who are gonna come after me that I hope won't have to work as hard or be as exhausted or, you know, that there's going to be that little glimmer. So I think that gives me hope. I think the community gives me hope as, you know, people come together in different ways. But definitely, <laughs> maybe that was the sigh you heard where it's tough. It, it sometimes feels like an endless sort of slog. Sharon, I... I I agree for so many reasons, and I hope we can actually carry on a little bit more of this discussion because it's going to tell us authentic things about our experiences. And what people don't appreciate is how pervasive these issues are. And, and they run right from the institution, right down to the small remarks that clerks make when you're you know, checking out at, at a drugstore. And the pace of change, I, I mean, there's, there's change and there's a superficial change but people don't recognize the underlying issues and they don't, they, they think that somehow, so an example of this, and this is a, a kind of racism, is that this group wants to help you. And right off the bat, there's a racist quality in that. And they don't recognize it. It's coming from a good place. It's saying, I get you, which they don't, but that's okay. I want to help you which comes from a, a place of, like, I like you, I, I care about you. But the notion that I will want to help you, I can help you, suggests a type of superiority. 
And it suggests they really don't get it because their help is just a different kind of imposed solution on our communities. And mm. they don't understand that, that our solutions have to come from us. And we have to be empowered and enabled to develop our solutions because those reflect our worldviews. And those reflect our traditions and our beliefs and our, our, our kin clans or relationships with each other and, and their desire to help. It's another form of hurting without recognizing those things. So is that part of, of what you also experience with this apparent change in, in views? Yes, definitely. I think it really ties into a lot of what you were saying of on a system and policy level, I think a lot of times there is the desire to create change in ways that change has been created in the past. And so rather than thinking about, okay, maybe the, the way that we've built this in the past doesn't work or serve, you know, those who are most in need of this change, I think that the real work, it's a lot harder to say, let's just not go into those same patterns again. Let's not tap into the same sort of processes or policies again and just reconstruct a whole way of being. But that's very challenging and threatening, I think, in institutions because they are institutions, right? Absolutely. And, and, and this, is where, this is where this stuff is so much trickier than we recognize. It's not simply about a level of awareness about another group's experiences. It's really understanding those people, whoever those people are, however you define those people. So whether we're talking about the indigenous people or, or whatever, and, and really understanding and, and coming at things as best they can from their point of view. But there's another trap in here, and this is the trap of the educated person. And the educated person thinks they understand because of their intellect, the experiences and implications and are able to extrapolate into another person's life. And you can't, I mean, I, I and I've fallen trapped to that. I, I had certain beliefs, like I tend to support, not tend to, I very much strongly support human rights, individual rights and the LGBTQ2 community is another very marginalized group. And I had the arrogance to think that I understood enough about this community for my own uh, position as a marginalized person until I got to know very well a gay man. And I realized I had no real depth of insight into his worldview, his experiences. And things that we just take for granted were shocking to me. And, and that was the curse of the educated person. I thought I knew better. And as a result, I thought I could possibly come up with solutions that would work for, for others. And truly, I couldn't. So the example he had, which shocked me, and, and it was so fundamental, it never even occurred to me. I, I held hands with my spouse down the street whenever I, she desires. He can't because of fear of being attacked physically. And it never occurred to me that something so basic in my context would have such a different implication in his context. So 
so I think this is a bit of the curse of the educated person that, that we carry. You know, back to your your thoughts, Sharon. There are many, many, many good people trying to help, but it's understanding sometimes their help hurts, and also their views are still not sufficiently informed that they can provide with any great insight the kinds of interventions that would be helpful. And so the interventions probably that are most helpful are addressing some of the inequity in the so-called meritocracy. It's removing some of these barriers that are associated with education. It's understanding and trying to teach all the flavors of racism, you know, individual racism, systemic racism, institutional racism, and, and recognizing these things and be prepared to hold them up to the light and say, if we look really hard and we listen to people and what they tell us, there's challenges here. So I think another part of moving forward has to be that those of us that are in these populations must be heard for what we say in these institutions and society. And when I was originally approached to, to speak on this, I really wanted a person that was not of the dominant culture to share the discussion because they have an appreciation of this that other people simply do not have. And there's an authenticity, a sharing of our experiences that simply are not held by someone that hasn't experienced these things. And the pain that I talked about and, and how it's a constant, constant attack. People don't understand that. Um, so we have to be heard. If we say this is a problem, they can't go away and analyze what we said and come back with their interpretation. It, I was at a, a session on ethics for academics. And one of the points was that Indigenous data is owned by Indigenous people. And this was really hard for the academics to accept. And it was not there, you know, they own the data and it's like, no, um, one of one of our rights is to, to own that data and understand and interpret it. And they struggled with this. And I said, well, let, let's let's contrast this. Let's look at gender issues. I said, how would you feel if I as a male came into this room and said to a group of females, tell me about your issues. And so they thoughtfully explained their, their issues. And I looked at them and said, oh, great. I'm going to take that and I'm going to go away and I'm going to meet with a panel of men and we're going to fix your problems. And they recognized the absurdity of that. And so as an institution, as organizations, as structures, there's a similar thing that takes place when, when you speak, Sharon, when I speak, they say, oh, great, we'll go away and we'll figure out what you really meant and we'll figure out how to fix your challenge. And it simply doesn't work. We have enough history to know that doesn't work. I often think about the phrase a seat at the table. Um, and sometimes I believe there's this idea that, okay, we'll add more seats with more um, with different people around, but sometimes I feel like what actually has happened is people should give up their seat at the table, um, or stand up and take themselves away from the table and let those seats be taken up by the group or the people that they're trying to help or advance. And, and that goes right to the, the core of it. I, I mean, it, 
having more seats at the table means there'll be more voices for for the dominant culture to take away and analyze and come back with their solutions where where if we have representation and acceptance of what we're saying is authentic legitimate valued valuable and an understanding that Sharon you've expressed a lot of really important ideas and 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 things that we need to address now can you help us come up with solutions that would work for you and some process that we could apply these so rather than saying we'll take your problems and we'll come up with solutions for you how can we empower you to address the things you think ought to be addressed how can we resource you sufficiently that you can move these things forward how can you give legitimacy to the voice of, of you and your community that reflect all of those important things you talked about and bring them into our organization to make it stronger and better and really speak to the notions of, of diversity and inclusion and equity whereas having more people at the table doesn't help if they don't have a voice and more people without voices <laughs> you just need a bigger room it doesn't, yeah. doesn't move anything forward oh for sure thank you robert for joining us for the second installment of our three-part episode on racism equity and representation i hope our listeners will join us next week for the last segment of this episode don't forget to subscribe to the straight from the cpa's mouth mailing list for exclusive content if you have ideas for future episodes or have any feedback you'd like to share, email us at knowledgecenter at cpaalberta.ca or leave us a comment on social media. And finally, if you'd like to learn more about the Heshi CPA Knowledge Center, check us out online at cpaalberta.ca slash foundation. Straight from the CPA's mouth is brought to you by the CPA Education Foundation. The CPA Education Foundation is the charitable arm of the Alberta CPA profession, providing up to 1.2 million each year in support of business and accounting education in the province. This podcast is just one of many resource materials available through the Heshi CPA Knowledge Center. This virtual hub features Alberta CPAs sharing their unique perspective and vast expertise on topics and issues such as leadership, finance, entrepreneurship, and more. Visit cpaalberta.ca slash foundation for more information on the Heshi CPA Knowledge Center and to learn how Alberta CPAs inspire success.